0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Political Science. I'm your host, Joe Renoir. My guest today is Dr. Matt Hill, who is a senior lecturer and head of international relations and politics at the Liverpool John Moores University. We'll discuss his new book, which is titled The Rise and Fall of Democracy Promotion in U.S. Foreign Policy from Carter to Biden, published by Routledge in 2022. Dr. Hill, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me,
1: Joe. We have a lot to talk about with this book. I have been very impressed in reading through it. It's a very concise book. You've said a lot in a short space. I think that improves its readability, in fact. It can find a wider audience. And I think you're entering into some very long-standing arguments about not just democracy promotion, but also the value of liberal internationalism, uh, the era of American hegemony, the era of liberal hegemony. So can you get us started with your basic argument and some of the turning points you're highlighting?
2: Sure, Joe. I suppose um, where it comes from is the last five or six years I've been teaching a module first on American presidents um, over the course of a whole year. Um, So there's quite a few presidents to go through and it's 20th century and 21st century. And then um, based on my research, my PhD on democracy promotion by the US in Afghanistan, in Bosnia, and then for the book from that PhD in Iraq, I had thought about democracy promotion in each of these individual administrations. And so, um, you know, when you think about uh, Carter, you think of the President Presidential Review Memorandum twenty eight on human rights. You know, when you think of uh, Reagan, as you well know, um, we look at the establishment of the National Endowment for Democracy, and then you go forward and you connect to the New World Order, and then you go through up to the present day with President Biden, and. I'd never really made a connection between the two. And, you know, it's kind of strange that I haven't and I hadn't really seen that much talk about it because actually continuity and discontinuity is one of our like main mantras of US foreign policy examination is, you know, what things stay constant and what change, you know, what 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 enables or encourages those changes is it external or international context? Is it domestic uh, context? And is it just that it's a different administration and the need to redefine the way in which they view the world? And so from that, I just decided that it would be actually quite good to chart that um, experience of democracy promotion from the current administration to the present day. And... I was a bit stuck, if I'm honest with you, for a while because I had the, the, the content. I've been teaching it for a number of years, but I was trying to find a way in which I could actually explore that relationship above and beyond just the continuity, discontinuity and, you know, create some kind of or use some kind of methodological framework, which would you know, eke out a few interesting further observations, which you wouldn't have necessarily without that framework. And so I organised a conference for the British International Studies Association U.S. Foreign Policy Working Group in uh, Liverpool at John Moores in 2018. And from that, the following year, we then had a symposium on Trump and cont- uh, cont- can't speak today continuity and discontinuity. And I realized that transformational change as a framework would be very helpful in actually charting the rise and the fall of democracy promotion. So, yeah, so that's a very long winded way of explaining where I came to uh, do the research.
1: So now lay out, if you will, a bit of the a bit of the background for our listeners, you have you've highlighted two main eras. And I, I think this is uh, one that will be generally familiar to to people in our field and uh, starting with Carter running up through the Reagan and Bush years. And the first Bush and, and Clinton and then a, a bit of a different world in the 2000s emerges, especially after well beginning about 2007, 2008. Uh, talk a bit about the background. And the, the, this, is, this is, I guess, part of the overarching structure alongside the, the transformational change framework that, that informs the entire study. But uh, go, go into a little bit of the background of, of how you've uh, organized the subject.
2: Well, I think my main point was to understand democracy promotion from three levels that I use, from that conceptualization, uh so the very uh the, the roots of the idea of what democracy promotion is um then to look at the rhetoric so the way in which the the US foreign policy establishment explained and legitimized democracy promotion or their foreign policy through the promotion of democracy and then the final one was to look at the actual implementation of it. So really drilling down to, okay, once the decision is made to promote democracy, how does it promote democracy? And using those three... Effectively, it's three different aspects of democracy promotion, as I understand it. And then looking at the different administrations, I was then looking at that transformational change framework and I had a series of checklists of what was required to investigate in those different administrations and it was literally uh, going okay so what's happening in this administration what's happening in this administration in these the, in these different areas of the conceptual the rhetoric and the implementation and then that was really just the you know that was the donkey work you know that was then i had all of this data and then i analyzed that data and said um you know um Charted the way in which democracy promotion, say at the rhetoric level, was spoken about um, in, um, say, the uh, Bush administration. You know, which is the zenith of democracy promotion as the kind of central pillar of U.S. foreign policy, particularly under Condoleezza Rice's steward de- stewardship of the um, State Department, and how you know the Freedom Agenda and so forth. And then if you look at the way in which democracy promotion was talked about and, you know, one of the good pieces about looking at this is Thomas Carother's work on democracy promotion in the Obama administration and looks at these different timelines of the way in which Obama promoted democracy. And in that initially they were quite reticent. And, you know, people have talked about the very language of democracy promotion within uh the the washington beltway as being toxic um, in the international environment it's toxic in the domestic population it's toxic because it's very much associated with foreign military interventions that haven't succeeded in fulfilling that level of uh, national objectives so it was going okay so this is interesting so why is this happening you know, why is there a sudden like a downturn in the kind of um, volume and um, uh, broadness of uh, the way in which democracy promotion is talked about as a part of foreign policy? And so that was kind of like what really got my interest in. And it was and and I mean, to be honest, it was that point of transformational change where you started seeing this kind of new approach to democracy promotion and that this the very concept of democracy promotion was being contested and being pulled apart in various ways. That to the point that, you know, there were serious concerns over whether or not this paradigm of democracy promotion was, was, um, was uh, uh sufficient enough to explain what was going on and 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 what the uh the U.S. under Obama was doing, and it was then that I was like, oh, but you know, how did democracy promotion come come around in the first place? And so that's why I walked it back to uh, the Carter administration because again, there I saw a very uh, clear distinction between what the uh, Nixon Ford administrations were doing. And then what Carter did as a response. And yeah, so that was that.
1: You know, it's a very clear narrative arc. And I think one that, uh, you know, it's a very satisfying explanation of it. I'm going to read you a quote. And this is, I I think, something I would highlight as as something close to a thesis. Uh, The rise and fall of democracy promotion as an effective foreign policy tool mirrored the relative dominance of the U.S. in the international arena, end quote. And, you know, I, I read this as, as a, an indication that democracy promotion is not something that's going to simply happen, as you've said, in, a, in, a, in the vein of continuity. Uh, the, sur- surely the, the bureaucracy exists, the laws exist, uh, but how they'll actually be implemented, what level of priority they'll have for each administration changes. And there really is a, a, a big turning point we've seen somewhere between the Bush and Obama years and uh, continuing into the Trump and Biden years. Um, I see. Tell me if I'm right about this. Uh, I I see that you're you're bringing in a bit of a, a realist perspective here, in a sense. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you to defend a theory, but uh, you're you're telling the story. I think you're you're borrowing from people like John Mearsheimer and others about this is kind of the story of the end of liberal hegemony. This is the story of, uh, and it, you know this may not last forever. But does that sound right to you? That I'm I'm reading that you're you're in a way you're telling the story of of the 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 uh, apex of american power in the 1990s and early 2000s and that with the diminishing of democracy promotion we're seeing that representing in some ways the limits to to liberal hegemony and uh, limits as well to american power is that kind of the broader story you're telling
2: yeah i mean i don't think i could explain it any better really um uh, than what you have. I think that, yeah, that was, that was, the, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about, um, you know, a kind of a theory, uh, a, a thesis, um, about this idea of democracy promotion and its connection to the rise and fall of the U S or the perception of the U S within the international community. And then, you know, tagged onto that, the kind of domestic, uh, kind of perception of the administrations. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, that that was an interesting kind of reflection for me um, because um, that wasn't actually an original part of the conversation. And this is why transformational change was such a useful tool for me because that wasn't actually part of the original investigation. You know, before you do all the uh, working outs of um, research, you kind of have an idea about where it's going to go. And um, I... You know, I pretty, ma- I pretty, uh, I had some suspicions about where I thought this was going with regards to transformational change because it seemed quite uh, clear to me on first reading that there was two kind of moments of, or the two periods of transformational change in this this time period in which I was examining. Um, but the 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 kind of the relationship to the status of the U.S. in the international community uh, was just one of those where I was just like. Oh, okay. So this helps give a much clearer picture about what's going on, and what does this say about the relative importance of democracy promotion um, vis-a-vis American values? And it does, to some extent, tap into that interest values. Yeah, like that. I don't think that there's a when you listen to uh, presidents talking over the decades about how the US will act in its values and its interests, or you hear President Obama talking about enlightened self-interest, there is a very clear relationship between interests and values, and values help explain why things are doing. It also shapes what options are available for the US to do. And I think that's an important point there, that it shapes it as well. The difficulty, though, is name me a situation from any country where they act in what we would call some kind of ethical or moral value um, without it also fulfilling some interest. It just, I I can't see it. Um, Maybe, you know, I don't know every country, so I can't claim supreme authority on here, but this is a working argument for me. Now, with that in mind, I think that, the um, I think that yes, it does help us understand the kind of weakening of liberal hegemony, um, um or the US dominance of liberal hegemony, um, and that there is uh, an elevation of um, um, other great powers in competition with the US. But I actually I'm thinking more about this recently because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I haven't fully consolidated or uh, worked out my ideas about this, but I've been writing down for a few weeks about certain things. And one of those, though, is that, um liberal hegemony. Yes, we have seen it in a very critical light for a very long time. Um, and um, now, though, There's an opportunity for various uh, people, including President Biden, um, including um, uh, Boris Johnson and this trust uh, um, foreign secretary, to renegotiate how that language of democracy and democratization and freedom is understood by the international community. And so effectively they're not the bad guys at the moment and because they're not the bad guys at the moment there is now space to recapture some of that um um uh, um strength or moral strength that uh, democracy and democratization has i think though you're never going to get the kinds of reach and the, and the applications of it in the way that it was in the Bush administration. I think that that's gone. But I think that um, whereas before Ukraine, I would have carried on talking more about the kind of the, the, the demise of democracy promotion and maybe its role in justifying uh, the liberal hegemony. And I think now we're in a period, again, of flux where, you know, there was a timepiece the other day that talked about, um, you know, let's revisit the end of history. Um, So, you know, we're in this point now where we're kind of re-articulating things. I don't think that that revisiting of the end of history is necessarily the uh, disproving maybe of Fukuyama's kind of maybe, you know, he calls it a misinterpreted thesis But that idea that, you know, the arc of progress is towards uh, uh, democracies, um, I don't think that that would be fully kind of like squashed but I do think that we're having to be a little bit more nuanced on how we think that that's going to go about. And maybe liberal democracy is not the kind of the arc of where we're going. Maybe it's something a little bit more stripped out and it's actually representative politics. And it's about those key themes, you know, which, which go beyond um, kind of Western liberalism of of equity and fairness and justice. Um, So, yeah, sorry, that's a, and uh, that is just such is such a good question and such an open question. In in some ways, I'd, I'd like to bring it back to you. And, and you know, what do you think?
1: Well, you know, you've you've brought up some great points. I, I, the, the elephant in the room right now is, of course, the war in Ukraine, as you mentioned. And, you know, this is maybe the sowing the seeds for the next book for for yourself and maybe for myself of um, I mean, one take on very recent events is that this is an indication of just how, how, uh, uh weak the developments of the last 25 years uh, really were the, the inability to the inability to really create an order that was going to prevent one country from invading another from, from, from power being the, the import, most important factor in world affairs and that Vladimir, someone like Vladimir Putin comes along and, uh, uh just, just, uh, uh, through force of will and and knowing that there are limits to how the world is going to respond, that he can uh, at least try to get what he wants. Now, we don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. But another way, another perspective would be to say, well, this has unified the transatlantic world in a way that nothing has in, you know, more than more than a few decades. Uh, you know, we saw the undermining of the transatlantic relationship during the time of the Iraq war, uh, and then some modest efforts to rebuild it during Obama's presidency, we saw what happened under Trump. Uh, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine may be, we may eventually look back at this as a real turning point in the pendulum swinging back towards something that you're, as you're, you're correct. We can't really identify exactly what that would be. It's, it's not going to be a world circa 1999, 2000, when the U S is absolutely in, in a unipolar. Capability, but maybe it is one where there's a restoration of uh, of of some kind of democratic rhetoric. Um, and I I don't want to talk too much about myself, but I this is a question I actually had for you toward the end of our interview here. I was going to ask, you know, is it possible that maybe not democracy promotion, but that something like recent events? We're talking about the rise of China, the the exercise, Russia's exercising of of, of uh, military power that perhaps this leads to the West reinvigorating itself as the West. You know, this is a concept that was, was diminishing in recent years with the EU and the WTO and, and uh, with the, the some years ago, the arguments of globalization, the, that, that the nation states winnowing away and that there is not a West. Well, maybe there is a West and maybe this is what the West should have been defending all along was things like democracy and human rights. Uh, so I, I I don't want to get get too much into my own perspective on it, but I how about this? Uh, uh, we w- what struck me, Matt, was one of the most important turning points is one that I think people ignore. There's been so much attention on Trump in the last five or six years that a lot of folks have forgotten about how important a transition the Obama administration was in American foreign policy in in, in precisely the way you've described in this book that that it's a transitional period. He may have been a, a center-left American Democrat, but he was, not the, he was not the Bill Clinton Democrat of the 90s or the Jimmy Carter Democrat of the 70s. And uh, you've called this the post-unipolar period, the 2008, post-2008 period. Uh, can you talk a bit about that transition? Because I think that helps us to understand a lot about then what Trump and Biden had to deal with, what tools they had to deal with, and, and, and the expectations they had to deal with. Sure. Um,
2: yeah, I, I mean, it is an interesting period. I think you're right. It, it's this, um, this transition period. And I think that when you look at what um, Obama had as he came into office, you've got the economic and financial crisis, which is, you know, the number one issue that he's dealing with. You've got um, a uh, war in Iraq that he sees as the wrong war um, or the one that we shouldn't have had. Um, and the need to kind of extricate as 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 quickly as possible. And then we have the um, the uh, Afghan war and the need to do something. And, you know, I remember at the time in that summer where there was, do we put more troops and do a surge like in Iraq or don't we? And then, you know, there's various kind of like situations uh, or, or conversations about that. And I think that you know when you're in that situation, um, and also you haven't got the money. You know that's one of the things when you don't have the resources, um, and you also don't have the willingness of the domestic population and the military to carry on doing the same thing, which they're seen as not working. Then there's a um, there's a question. Over whether or not that strategy is actually working, and it's also about uh, you know a complicated realization about how we can interpret what our national interests are in these places, and whether or not they're achieved with boots on the ground, or whether they're achieved with uh, military engagement or involvement, and what does that involvement look like? Can this be done with um, you know so-called precision attacks and special forces in l- localized situations? And not have such a big presence and, and be such a, a kind of uh, a point of, of criticism in domestic audiences, but around the world in that, you know, um, you know, you respond to an attack on your troops and then you kill um, some civilians with, well, you know, if that keeps on going on, you're going to get hit psychologically and so you know what do you do with that so I think there are a lot of important decisions and you know it was the context the timing and everything that actually it was responsible to disengage with the level of expectation from the rhetoric of exceptionalism that there was this recognition that actually we need to um, you know not be illiberal or sorry, not be non-liberal in our understanding of what we want to do and why, but be a little bit more realistic about whether or not we can achieve it. You know, be less optimistic that all we need to do is change this in our democratisation plans or change this in our military strategy and it will lead to success. And I think that was, you know, an important time of, you know, kind of trying to reconfigure the way in which the U.S., focused its approach in the international arena. Now, I don't think they get up, got it right in a number of areas. And I also think that some of the ways in which they talked about their disengagements in places, you know, the the Iraqization, which was something which um, I believe it was Biden as vice president talked about, this sense of, you know, the US military and allies and coalition partners of have been involved, it's been their military mission to stabilise Iraq, and now it's the Iraqis' responsibility and to kind of disengage. And then the saying that that was part of the conversation in Vietnam, uh, Vietnam, see, it comes from the Vietnamization, that's where it is, but I mean the Afghanization. so the Afghanisation of, of, of the uh, opposition to Taliban, Um, so that the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police then become the point of contact in that fight. And so, yeah, so you've got this kind of very transitionary period. Um, I think part of this story is that he never rejected American exceptionalism. Um, Biden's administration never rejected liberalism as an ideology and the Um, it should be something that other states should replicate. But what he was doing was pulling back and disengaging with the large-scale missions and the expectations that what they were doing to help deliver democracy was, um, you know, they took democracy from the equation. Like I mentioned, the Afghan uh, Pakistan strategy document um, of the, um, I think it was the late I think it was like two thousand nine, uh, two thousand ten. Didn't talk about democracy at all, except one reference, and that was to Pakistan. That wasn't to Afghanistan. That the narrative changed and it started talking about development work. Because so, if you look at the funding um, of U.S. foreign assistance in Afghanistan, it massively shut up uh, when Obama kind of pulled back from the objectives of creating and establishing a democracy in Afghanistan and moved it towards development. So they put more money in to do, to do the work of development work and to stabilise the country, but they took away the expectation that they are going to be responsible for delivering a democracy. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of things there
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, in fact, you can really see it setting up uh, from the time that Obama takes office in January 2009. The limits are are everywhere to be seen. I mean, the, the financial crisis, uh, obviously job one for him was going to be the domestic economy. And you very rightly point out then the amount of debt that the Americans take on, that those the combination of those two things means very clear uh, resource limits, uh, resource limits to what one can achieve, even if one wants to. And then you add to that the the waning public interest in shaping societies far from our shores. You know, I, I've always said that we've been in this long period of neo-isolationism, and uh, you you refer to this in a few different ways. Uh, we've been in this period of neo-isolationism for going on about 15 years now, 14, 15 years. And Obama, I think, recognized that. I, I mean, I wanted to uh, read something to you. I, I do wonder what his what his interests were in terms of foreign policy. He's really more of a domestic policy president. But you made the very interesting case. And I think you're right about this that they were prioritizing local voices. It wasn't as though they were going to completely ignore uh, the 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 long standing, you know, at that point for two and a half, three decades, importance of democracy promotion but that it would be determinant uh, depending on what was happening on the ground and also America's interests, as you've said. So here's how you wrote this in that chapter. Uh, If local actors required support in a democratic transition and asked the U.S. for assistance, the Obama administration would act, but only if it suited the administration's interpretation of U.S. interests. If supporting a non-democratic regime was conducive to American national interests, then the U.S. would maintain its current policy as it did in Bahrain in 2011 and uh, end quote and so we have we have the the response to the Arab spring we have the very halting uh, adventure in Libya one might say that did not turn out the way that they wanted and that became a a, a point of a point of vulnerability for Hillary Clinton when she ran for president then but I think you, you you very rightly point out that there is this it's more a matter of we're not going to be leading these events we're going to learn from the mistakes of the Bush administration we're going to see what goes on in the ground and combine that with our interests does that sound about right to you am I reading that correctly?
2: Yeah yeah you are Joe I think um, the um, I think what helps understand the situation with Obama is um, and this is part of an ongoing um, piece of research, that um, a monograph that I'm working on at the moment, which is looking at the Obama administration's response to um, the Arab Spring. And I think that in many ways, I don't think they wanted the Arab Spring to happen in the sense that um, I think it complicated their relationship with the language of democracy promotion, because I think there was a very clear incentive and understanding that they would pull back from any sense of uh, large scale democracy uh, promotion missions. And in fact, if you look at, you you remember the Iranian revolution, I think it was about 2009, 2010, um, the Obama administration was not too critical of the Iranian government and kind of held a little bit back thinking that that would enable them to then negotiate um, um, with the Iranians with regards to the acquisition of a nuclear weapon so I think that you know but once that kind of didn't pan out and once the Arab Spring hit I think that there was a suddenly a recognition that they had to kind of communicate with the language of democracy and and to them the two people wanting a democracy but this is the interesting thing the language of local ownership they adopted and adapted from the critical peace building literature and that just historically is referred to the way in which democratization or development missions in countries operate so that you're not got someone in washington dc or in london or elsewhere telling a local office or a local population or a local government in a developing country or a target country, how they should run their elections or how they should do things. That actually, it was a way to um, go, you know, let's listen to the priorities of the locals. Let's listen to what they want or what they think they need. Now, what Obama successfully does, I argue, is that he took that from the kind of implementation level. Remember, I talked about the three levels, the conceptualization, the rhetoric and the implementation. He took that from the implementation and he applied it to the uh, rhetoric level. And so that's how we then get to a place where he can say, we will respond to the locals if they want democracy but if they're not asking for democracy, then we're not going to force it on them. Now, he then or his administration then determines who are the locals and how many of them are required and um, in what circumstances. So he can then narrate action and inaction using a value framework. And I think that is probably the neatest trick out of his foreign policy book. Um, I, I just think like I admire. The capacity to turn something into uh, a positive, to not help people around the world uh, uh, supporting for change, political change, so that it's more representative and accountable, which is, after all, what the kind of historical, uh, you know, whether it's the city on a hill or like an active, actual interventionist kind of policy is, but that's part of the kind of the gig with American identity, yeah, the mythology of America. So to be able to talk about that, but not actually do it, but still get the points for talking about it, I think was a, a very clever kind of uh, kind of um, um, exercise. And so that is the way that I think Obama was able to deal with that transition period. Um, I think there are problems to it, of course, you know, because, you know, when you're telling someone, uh, this is a duck, but in fact it's not a duck. Then you know you're going to come up with some problems, yeah. Um, you know people are going to object in varying ways, but I think he pulled it off. So,
1: well, you know, I, if, if I could add one thing to that, I, I and I think it's a great project for you to pursue. the The rhetorical attention is also, in a sense, it's a sop to his domestic constituents. There are certain there there is a a left wing of the Democratic Party that is interested in uh, global amelioration. There is a slightly different group interested in in human rights and democracy promotion. there There are the NGOs. Uh, there's a global audience. So yeah, this is a maybe maybe part of that study would be about about uh, messaging about uh, about imagery, about uh, r- rhetorical claims versus actual policy versus reality. and um uh, that would tie in neatly with. In fact, my next question, which is, so you're you're making the case that this is a a, a post unipolar period is 2008 onward, that there is perhaps more continuity with Obama to Trump to Biden than people might think. That that you'd look at the three presidential administrations, and these are three very different guys, uh, three very different, uh, uh, let's just say, public personae, three very different sets of of. Uh, uh, interests and 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 uh everything about them but that there seems to be a bit more of a connection between them in terms of this subject uh, generally the the perspective on american exceptionalism the limits to american power and this kind of thing Can you talk then a bit about when we go from obama to tr- the trump biden period uh what goes on there
2: yeah it's a really good question and it's the one which is um Obviously, causes offence among some circles. The idea that I'm saying that there's there's continuity between these three very different um, uh, administrations, or you know, two are very different to one administration. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was when I was kind of working this out, I was like, okay, so I'm going to have to be quite clear as to where I thought there were some similarities, and I think the similarities are. The downplane of democracy promotion, and you know, so you know, strip the kind of rhetoric level away, and let's just look at the implementation level. Is that Obama was quite clear that he didn't want to um, engage in the same way as the previous president and the previous president before him, the Clinton administration. So I think that um, that that's where the similarity lies is that they were both resistant to large-scale interventions. You know, they, 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 they had the legacy of Iraq, Afghanistan, um, and then, interestingly, for various reasons, but on the surface level, the, uh, the, the failure in Libya um, to have a different approach to democratisation um, um, in regards to establishing a democracy, So that's where that continuity is. The difference, though, is that uh, Trump rejected liberalism as an ideology and the foundational principles of liberalism. And democracy promotion is an aspect of that liberal, liberal ideology. And so that's where the extra rejection comes from. And if you look at, for example, where is Obama reduced the, 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 the scope and the, the opportunities for democracy promotion uh, in that way, what you get, um, but he increased, say, the amount of money for USAID in Afghanistan, as an example. And, and um, if you look at Trump, he rejected the ideology as well, and he also rejected the practice of it and how he did that was not only declaring that he wasn't going to do any interventions, but he also gutted the State Department, uh, made sure that people weren't um, reemployed, uh, got loads of the top people in the State Department to resign, um, gutted the um, um, Agency for International Development, and uh, made very clear that um, he didn't support issues such as independent media and independent judiciaries within the United States and the kind of impact that had on other states um, in regards to their willingness to compromise their own judiciaries and their own media um, and to go against some of the relationships that the US embassies in those countries had made with some of those non-state actors, uh, uh, independent media, judiciary and so forth, that they, in a way, how much of a green light this was, that's a separate question, but it was a green light. Um, and i think that 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 created a very kind of difficult situation also on top of that president trump's um somewhat honorific um uh, love of uh, strong men in leadership also kind of contributed to this sense of um you know um attempts to um delegitimize uh objections um, and and opposition within states. Um, and then you get to the Biden administration, and that's the interesting one, because, yeah, we, we've only had a year and a bit, so we can't really talk in too much significance, but we can talk about trends, right? So where I would talk about Trump uh, to Biden, I would say that Biden, to some extent, is going back to that space that Obama occupied, which is a more or less, you know, trajectory uh, of, of, of the different presidents um, in that it's a kind of reconsolidation of the reduction of democracy promotion as an overarching framework to explain and legitimise foreign policy that the language of democracy is to some extent uh, stripped out of uh, development work and so forth and and um but and in a way you could you could potentially argue that trump is a bit of an aberration in that because he rejected liberalism in so many different foundational ways but where i would say that biden perhaps has gone the extra step is that he has kind of said that it's a return to democratisation or a return to things how they were under Obama and democracy promotion and so forth and, and the way in which America is to conduct its foreign policy and to be good with its other allies and the community of democracies and he has this, um, for want of a better word, festival for democracies uh, recently and, and, and stuff like that. One of the ways in which he could have doubled down on that was lost when um they left afghanistan and yes there were absolute legitimate reasons for leaving um but again this comes into the language of afghanization now it was about the afghanization of the uh, conflict with the taliban so it was removing themselves from responsibility of setting up the situation in the first place um uh, the question or the problem is that um, for whatever reason, the intelligence they were listening to, and I understand and acknowledge the fact that there were other intelligent narratives about the quickness of the fall of the Afghan government, but the, the, the intelligence they decided to accept and, and base their policies on um, enabled, uh, was was faulty and the Taliban took over in a shorter period of time. And so the very conflict and the issue about withdrawing was brought to the frame in a, in a, a very much real way um, and and a very much this is the responsibility of the Americans as opposed to the fall which they knew was going to happen was the responsibility of the Afghan government and the Afghan military and the uh, police. So that I think that and then he had to double down on his withdrawal and interestingly in his narrative he talks about the uh, no longer a safe haven for terrorists, um, and that that was their priority, and that they could achieve that without having boots on the ground. And you know, if we remember and we go back twenty years, that was the initial language that Rumsfeld and um, uh, Bush was talking about in terms of what they should do there. Um, that you know, it was only with the UN intervention that democracy promotion and democratisation suddenly became a much more central part of the post-Taliban era. And so um, returning to an approach which isn't about state building and it isn't about nation building, it's just a really kind of interesting place where um, the uh, the idea that Biden has returned to the democratisation fold, it kind of falls there in that kind of very public space so that you know there are very committed reasons or or conclusions to say that um that isn't where biden's going but ukraine happened and ukraine in a way for different for for kind of like parallels is kind of the arab spring for obama in that it's forced him To return to democracy, USA, um, a national endowment for democracy, has got a massive bumper um, from the Biden administration in recent months. Um, you have um, the language of democracy being more receptive amongst populations around the world and that the US is is participating in that mission to save a democracy so there are kind of it's kind of like it's just we are equally still in that transition period where I don't think we actually know where we're going because there is so much meaning by particular events and we're kind of Jostling for some kind of uh, 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 safe uh, or you no know, stable narrative about how we see the world and how we see America's role in the world, and that's where we talked earlier about the liberal hegemon. You know how does that fit
1: into that picture? Yeah, I wonder what you think about. Uh, I'm thinking again uh, about the Trump to uh, the Trump to Biden transition, and along the lines of what you've just described, that. You know, certainly there's a rhetorical uh, tilt toward tilt back to something like an earlier era where Biden says, "You know, America is back. We are back in international institutions. We are back in consulting with our allies and partners. Uh, we are going to stand for American principles and and you know define those in various ways." Uh, but there are limits to to what the international system will offer will allow and there are also limits to domestic power. I mean what this is certainly one of the most important lessons of the last year of Trump's presidency was just how much disarray we saw in um, American society. I mean I was in the US. I saw it personally. I mean we 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 don't need to dwell on it, but you know, this is a a, a real rejoinder to the idea that that someone like Biden could bring back a an earlier liberal optimism. However, uh, in a time of constraints on American power, do you think Matt that it could be the case that Biden and let's say a Biden successor, uh, let's say that we're talking the next the next 3 years plus the next 4 after that, that they would see something like what American leaders found in the 1940s and 50s which is that coalition building really matters, that uh, multilateralism really matters, that that uh, institutions that we had neglected really matter, like you know, we're seeing we're seeing perhaps the bolstering of NATO now uh, that that uh, creating new institutions, especially uh, across the Atlantic and with well across the Pacific as well, uh, the, the, the Americas partnerships with Japan and South Korea and so on, and alliance treaty alliances with various countries. Is it possible that this is the kind of uh, th- that it's a bit more of a Wilsonian institutional, Approach that someone like Biden and, and perhaps a successor would have, and that it's much less of the U.S. directed uh, uh, unilateral. We are going to decide which countries are going to have a political transition and how. Uh, does, does that make sense as a as a as as a way to consider Biden right now, and also as a way to consider where we go in the future?
2: Yeah, that that's a really good question. Um, I hadn't quite. Um, thought about the the kind of the return of um, recognizing the importance of liberal institutions as a means to um, maintain and develop um, the um, the American position Um, and in that position of dominance recognizing that they need that support in a way that they did you know 70 years ago yeah I mean, yeah, it, it totally makes sense to me. I mean, it's an interesting point because um, the 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 transition is a product of the failure of a, a foreign policy and the opportunities caused by that failure in foreign policy for alternate um, powers to either pick away at liberal. Um, the liberal way or liberal international system or the liberal order and, um, you know, be very picky and and kind of uh, creating lots of problems internally with countries as well, like Russia's uh, meddling with domestic politics and various democracies, including the United States and France and the UK. And so um, then you also have obviously China and you know how does China um, benefit from this Russian um, picking up part of the liberal system and the liberal way? Yeah, that's an interesting part of that story. Um, yeah, I can most definitely see that the um, way forward for the U.S. and um, the Biden and for the liberal way is for there to be a greater recognition of the importance of international institutions. Um, I think, though, if you, and I don't think this will probably happen, but if you want to take warning from this lesson of the last 30 years, it's don't pretend you're promoting democracy when you've got your eyes fixated on some other national interest that's maybe a little bit more um, opaque in understanding or reading and also be a bit more willing to um, uh, relinquish control over the way in which liberalism shapes your world and shapes your view of the world and shapes your ability to engage in the world. And by that, I mean, for example, um, you know, um, acknowledging and signing up to the um, ICC um, about acknowledging um, that um, in order to move forward and in order to states that are maybe teetering on the democratic uh uh uh, crisis area like hungary and that that actually very specific liberal minded um decisions are made by the us that encourages them to also and shapes also the way in which people should be going or way in which states and society should be going because then i think that we're actually going to give um us a second opportunity of working liberalism and maintaining liberalism as the kind of predominant way of being and that it is the kind of the archetype and that the kind of competitors in that fight of dominance um aren't just you know aren't um uh, given a further um um encouragement to uh, become a contesting way of organizing things because that's the key thing here because um, you know as it stands, we have um, um, an acknowledgement that economic liberalization does not guarantee political liberalisation and that means an important thing when you come to the likes of China or you come to the likes of Russia or any other authoritarian state. Economic liberalism, stand-alone, rejection of modernization theory and that link between the two, which is still so prevalent in our understandings and in our thoughts in foreign policy framing. Because, you know, modernization theory from the 50s onwards is still probably a legacy of the uh, instructions that members of the foreign policy establishment have uh, studied along with um, uh, transitology or transition theory, um, which has kind of been a little bit more um, um, less, it's been a bit more ahistoric in regards to where democracy can establish itself. So I think that that kind of, um, you know, uh, we can't give if we want liberal political and economic and social liberalism to guide the international uh, the way. Um, and the international order, and all of the kind of subdivisions of that, um, if we want that to be the way forward, then we have to um, be more honest in accepting the drive. Um, So we relinquish a bit of our immediate national or pragmatist national self-interest in the short term, and we go a little bit more expansive on that. But, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But, yeah, that's how... That's how I see that kind of, that's how I see it play out if, if, and I, yeah, I don't like to use these terms, but if we want to quote unquote win um, and keep liberalism as a central feature of uh, international relations and the international arena and also have that influence the domestic identity of states, and still live in that end of
1: history narrative, then I think that's where we need to go. Well, Matt Hill, that was a great, uh, a great wrap-up thought. I was going to say, I uh, have a, the concluding question. You really just answered it. To where are where, where we go? What are possibilities? And I think you could really explore some of these in your next book. Uh, before we go, do you have anything else you wanted to add to that? I was just going to say concluding thoughts that you, <laughs> you might want to add to your, your uh, prior concluding thoughts. Anything that you would like readers to know about this book before we sign off?
2: Yeah, I I think um, what I'd probably want them to um, think about is that this is a story and it's a story um, using a particular um, lens in order to bring out certain points. Now, it's a um, it's about um, 90 pages. Uh, so it's it's about um it's a refined argument and they i did have the opportunity to turn it into a much bigger book but i decided and i think i made the right decision i decided not to expand it because i think expanding in it expanding it would only have added further detail and maybe detracted from the kind of ease of the narrative and the flow of the argument. And it would just have been a lot more data. Now, I'm perfectly happy to have a conversation with people about the data and also some of the kind of like the the greater meta conversations like you so um, importantly highlighted about connecting to questions of liberalhood hegemony. And how does this fit into that conversation um, uh, with regards to Biden and democracy promotion and uh, Ukraine uh, and the invasion by Russia? Um, I think that, um, you know, I welcome those conversations with people. So please get in contact with me.
1: Well, Matt Hill, this has been a great talk, a great chat. Uh, Dr. Matt Hill is Professor, pardon me, Senior Lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, And his new book is titled The Rise and Fall of Democracy Promotion in U.S. Foreign Policy from Carter to Biden, published by Routledge in 2022. And as he's described, it is a a very concise and straightforward and I think very readable book and uh, readers will learn a lot from it. So Matt Hill, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Joe.